0: The answer.
2: Yes, indeed. It is the Bob France Authority. Good morning to you. Past 10 o'clock. Thanks for joining us. It is a Wednesday, the sixth morning of the 11th month of the year of our Lord 2019. Remember her? Hold on a second. I want you to hear her. A little bit better than that.
0: We cannot continue to look away
3: from this crisis anymore. Wildfires that are being intensified by the climate crisis. How
2: dare you, she said. Well, this is what uh, uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says. The President made a decision uh, uh, a little while back that we would leave
0: the Paris climate, accords mm-hmm. for the simple reason uh, that it was America that would suffer the straitjacket. It was American jobs that would be lost. It would be quintessentially unfair to the American people and the American workers.
2: Today was the first day that we could file uh, the document that we did today and and 12 months on we will withdraw formally. And that is exactly what we have done. France
3: and China, among countries expressing regret at the United States decision. The Chinese Foreign Ministry saying governments should work together to combat climate change. Germany calling the decision regrettable but no surprise. European Union spokesperson Mina Andriva rejecting suggestions the deal is doomed.
0: The world will continue to use the Paris Agreement to take action to reduce the emissions uh, <laughs> that are having a negative impact.
3: The US is the first signature to withdraw from the deal agreed in 2015 by nearly 200 countries.
2: Yeah, and uh the US is the only one that was uh, going to actually as Mike Pompeo said suffer the brunt of uh the repercussions of that. Meanwhile, the two biggest polluters in the world, China and India, don't change squat. Joining us now to discuss uh the removal or the withdrawal rather from the Paris Climate Accord by President Trump and the United States is Gregory Wrightstone. He's a geologist, and he's the best-selling author of "Inconvenient Facts: The Science That Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know." Mr. Wrightstone, good to talk to you. How are you, sir? Uh,
4: good to talk to you. Yeah, there's so much to unpack here, but yeah, the <laughs> book is actually today, right now, is number one bestseller in a couple categories on Amazon. So, I'm well, gonna...
2: congratulations. So, that is,
4: I'm taking a victory lap there. Yeah, well, but, you should, you know, but you know what? I'm gonna, I'm
2: gonna... Okay, I'm
4: going to I'm I'm take take a, a stab at danger here and disagree with you right off the back. Because you said that India and China are not changing a thing. Actually, they're doubling down and in increasing uh, their use of coal. They're increasing investment both countries in both coal mining, imports of coal, and creating coal fired electricity generation. So they're they're actually. They're thumbing their nose, and for China to criticize the United States for pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord is rich, because they're they're le- we are leading the world in CO2, carbon dioxide emission reductions, and what uh, the new EPA secretary just last week uh, said that the United States has reduced its CO2 emissions by 14%, but this is the key, we've reduced it 14%, but that with... In 45 days or less, the increases from China alone will wipe that out, and, and for them to criticize us. and uh, But if, if we've not talked before, but uh, I'm actually a big proponent of more CO2. Uh, if you look on the back of my truck, it's it's got a bumper sticker that says, I heart CO2. <laughs> uh, so I'm... I'm a huge, huge let, me, let me, let me, let me let you follow plan up
2: plan on it. that in a second. Let me, let's follow up on that in a second because I want to know what you mean by that. But yeah. uh, it wasn't actually China that complained and criticized us for pulling out. It was European nations. It was France and Germany. They were the ones screaming England, like, screaming that we shouldn't have done this. But they're, w- the, the problem here is they're, they are complaining about the wrong nation. As you said, we've reduced our uh, CO2 emissions. Why aren't they calling out communist China? Why aren't they calling out uh, over polluting uh, India? They're, they're, they're pointing at us as if we are the problem, we don't need to be a part of the Climate Accord in order to reduce our CO two emissions. We'll do it organically, just not at the you know at the tip of the spear pointed by the United Nations.
4: Yeah, India is a great great case study in this. Prime Minister Modi has said repeatedly he's going to do what's best for the people of India. There's 1.3 billion people there. More than half of them live in destitute poverty, and what he's planning to do, and what he wants to do, is a 100 percent electrification of the nation, and that's how he's going to pull these people out of just horrible, horrible poverty. I've been there not that long ago, speaking at a conference, and it's it's bad. And he wants, how, how you bring these people up out of destitute generational poverty is providing abundant, affordable, uh, and clean electricity, and that comes mainly from fossil fuels. So they're, he's using coal-fired energy to, to lift his people out of destitute poverty. And uh, he says, you know, we'll, we'll maintain our average CO2 emissions per capita. It will always be much less than the United States. So he throws it right back at us. Uh, so there's uh, the other thing to consider. India, if we look around the world, 4 million people die in early death due to lung diseases, uh, lung cancer, emphysema, uh, because they're cooking over wood or dried dung in their own homes. They don't have access uh, to electricity, the fossil fuels like compressed natural gas or propane. Um, I was just looking at a picture this morning of a woman in Nepal, 34 years old, um, just had cataract surgery. We don't hear about this, but these women, mostly women, cooking inside over these fires uh, get cataracts at a very, very early age. She was nearly blind, uh, and she was given uh, this cataract surgery. We don't hear about this. That's 4 million lives that could be spared. If, they were, if we could provide fossil fuel-fired energy to them, like propane, compressed natural mm-hmm. gas, or electricity. And that's an easy solve right there.
2: Tell me what you mean when you say, we're talking to Gregory Wrightstone, the author of, as he just pointed out, the best-selling uh, Inconvenient Facts the Science Al Gore does not want you to know about uh, or to know. Tell me uh, why you say you have that bumper sticker saying, I love CO2. You want more. You're a proponent not of emissions oh. being cut, but actually more CO2. Well,
4: yeah look at what's actually happening today and that's what I do, I'm a I'm a, a climate realist, I, I, I live in the real world and I look at what's happening today and I find that and not, I mean, it's backed up by science facts and data, uh, I see an earth that's thriving, prospering and greening and it's not even close and it's mainly due, well it's due to a number of things but it's due in part to rising temperatures and they are rising, have yeah, been for 300 years and increasing CO2 uh, the, the Earth is, according to NASA, uh, up to fifty percent of the Earth is what they call greening. In other words, vegetation is increasing, uh, and they attribute that. And less than four percent is what they call browning. So fifty percent increasing, less than four percent browning or loss of vegetation. That's a really good trade-off, and they attribute it to climate change, uh, rising temperatures, and increasing CO2. Uh, and it's and it's not even close. It's stark. It's mm. it might be the the greatest untold story of the late 20th and early 21st century is how the Earth is responding positively to our changing climate. Now, what we hear in the media is completely different, but just think when you hear these things, these are predictions of what they say might happen in 50 or 80 years based on failed climate models. If we actually look at what's happening, uh, we, we find that that's not happening. We find things like uh, forest fires I like to talk about, because they state, the National Climate Assessment and other reports state categorically that fires are increasing due to climate change. Well, the, the science and the facts completely destroy that notion. We've been in a long-term fire decline across the Northern Hemisphere, even in California, according to Cal Fire. You'll be shocked to learn this, maybe, and your listeners – even in California, according to Cal Fire, the number of fires in California has declined by fifty percent, approximately over the last thirty years. Now the area burned has increased, so that means each fire's twice as big as what it was thirty years ago, and probably a lot more intense. But that's a forest management issue. That's not that's not a uh, that's not a climate change or global warming issue, and. And the recent spate of fires were actually generated by these Santa Ana winds that were, they were instigated or begun because of a high-pressure, frigid air mass that descended into the, uh, the High Mojave Desert in the Great Basin area. So, and this cold air then rushes down into the, into the valleys towards the coast. So actually, the, the Santa Ana winds and the recent fires were caused by extraordinarily cold weather that's up in the high mountainous areas and completely opposite of what we're being told. So yeah, we're being misled on a, on a grand, grand basis here about so many things.
2: We are talking with uh, Gregory Wrightstone, the author of inconvenient facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't, Al Gore doesn't want you to know. Um, I don't have the book. Uh I wish I did. But I do see on your website, inconvenientfacts.xyz, that when I ordered the book uh I might also want to take advantage of the Inconvenient App. Tell us about oh, the app.
4: Oh, it's awesome. We uh, we rolled it out. If I if I can mention another uh radios, not as popular as you, but I did it on the Glenn Beck show. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I tried to get I tried to do it on your show and you just, you know, you were too busy to have me. But uh, Glenn was he loves the app. We're approaching fifty thousand downloads. Uh, We rolled it out there, and then two days later, Apple removed it from the App Store. Uh, You can guess what Vice President, ex Vice President, sits on their board of directors. Yeah, it's out, of course. And uh, so we fought with them and fought, and uh, it was down for oh, almost two months, two and a half months, I believe. And it was the lead story on Drudge. Uh, uh, Laura Ingram, Fox News, picked up it and ran with it. It was. It was big news because this was really the first that we'd seen that Apple had weaponized uh, the app store in this regard, and uh, so it really blew up and it really popularized the book. But now the app is back up and available. So you can have all this these sixty inconvenient facts that are in the book in the palm of your hand. that way if you're if you're at Sunday dinner and your idiot nephew Billy, that's majoring in sustainable development at Ohio State, tells you the polar bears are going extinct you can call up oh wait a minute billy here's fact number 52 showing 60 years of polar bear population history billy and you know you can you can pull that right up and you can you're you're armed and empowered uh with with this information in the palm of your hand and it's the people that have it uh just tell me they just love it use it on a weekly basis when they're when they're talking with people that aren't as well as for, informed as they are
2: Gregory Wrightstone, uh, have you? Are you familiar with Kurt Schlichter, the football player? No, not Art. That's Art Schlichter. Kurt oh, Schlichter. Okay, I sorry. did that first time I met Kurt. By the way, I looked at his last name and I said it's pronounced Schlichter, and he said, "Yeah, why?" And I said, "Because it looks like Schlichter, which reminded no, me I'm of Art Schleister. I'm not familiar
4: with him now. No.
2: Kurt, Kurt is a is a senior columnist with TownHall.com. He's a retired Army colonel. He's a columnist mm-hmm. with TownHall.com. Townhall He's a Los Angeles trial attorney who is also now. Uh, moved into radio he is like me a guest host on some of the national shows like the hugh hewitt show you sound identical to him your your <laughs> your your voice your mannerisms your the, the things you say the way you say them i kid you not will you come back on with me i'm going to call kurt in la and i'm going to have him come on the air with the two the two of you together i swear to god oh, you sure. guys are your vocal doppelgangers if they are such <laughs> a thing it's an amazing, and I love it. By the way, because my listeners love Kurt, they love to hear him when he comes on with me because he is just a matter of fact truth teller, the way you are. And uh, I just think you guys would get all get along famously. We'll what? have to put that together.
4: Oh, absolutely. I'm. I don't want to sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but I I hear this from the from so many of the the national radio hosts. They say it's it's so rare to have a scientist that's actually able. To, con- to talk about things that people can understand and do it in an interesting uh, method to make it, you know, you, yes, you want to be entertaining. It's radio, but you want to sure. provide scientific, factual information that's backed up. And I all of my uh, work and research here is, is based on things like I referenced CAL FIRE. You know, that's the California Fire sure. Network. Uh, I I do I get my data from NASA. I I'm am I'm an expert. I've just been recently added as an expert reviewer. the intergovernmental panel on climate change so they've recognized me as and my qualifications to talk about this i don't agree with some of what they do Uh, there is some good science being done but the conclusions that are being drawn i disagree with strongly right again I'm, i'm a huge proponent of an earth that's... Thr- do we have a, just a few minutes and we can talk actually
2: a, Actually, i tell you what. You know what? I can I can find a couple of minutes for you on the back end, but I have to hit this right, break let's now. Let's I'm already two that. minutes past you'll, it. You'll yeah, it. Hold, hold on a second. Gregory Wrightstone's got a few more thoughts for us. We'll do that right after this.
0: It's the Bob France Authority here on AM 1420. The Answer.
2: All right, I've got three and a half good minutes left with Gregory Wrightstone. Gregory, the author of Inconvenient Facts, the science that Al Gore doesn't want you to know. We were about to wrap it up, but you said you had a couple more things you wanted to share with us. Gregory, the well, floor I, is yours.
4: Yeah, yeah. One thing that's really important, I'm a geologist, so I look at the long term, uh, but even we, we, we consider thousands of years to be just a blink of a geologic eye. But if we just go back and look throughout human history, back 4,500 or 5,000 years of, of modern human history, we see that there were periodic warming periods and periodic cooling periods. We're in a warming period. It started over 300 years ago, long before we started adding carbon dioxide. Uh, But each of the previous warming periods, the Minoan, the Roman, the medieval warm periods, each warm period uh, experienced an earth that was thriving and prospering. Food was bountiful. they were, they were able to grow huge amounts of crops and feed the population. Um, they, these periods, these warm periods, were called, before pol- climate science became politicized, these warm periods were called Climate Optima. They were called Climate Optima because both the Earth's ecosystems and humanity prospered. It's the intervening cold periods that are called with names like the Greek Dark Ages, the Dark Ages, and the Little Ice Age. Each cold period was associated with crop failure, famine, pestilence, and mass depopulation. And it's just opposite of what we're being told, isn't it? We're being told, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, we can't let it get any warmer, we're all going to die. No. Historically, that we find that that's just not so. We find that humans prospered at, at much higher temperatures uh, in the past warming periods than, than what we are today. And it, we may get another degree or so of warming. Fine. Uh, look back on what's happened. Uh, again, civilizations. There's a strong correlation between the rise and fall of temperature and the rise and fall of civilizations. And and it's and again, I, I say this a lot. It's just opposite of what we're being told. So, what know, is your
2: what is your what is your take, if I may, real quick, Gregory, on uh, Greta Thunberg? The uh, 16 yeah, year old who took the climate world by storm and lectured us all about robbing her of her childhood.
4: Oh, man, there's so much to unpack there. Uh, well, she came over, she doesn't want to fly, so she came over in a boat that was made of carbon fiber that was constructed out of petroleum products that she wants to ban, and number one. Uh, it took four intercontinental flights to fly the crew, ferry the crews back and forth so they could sail this thing. Um, and now she's traveling. In a, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger provide a Prius, I believe. Uh, and it's a coal-fired car. She thinks it's clean, but it's actually the energy's coming from coal-fired plants for the most part. And, uh, no, she's... You know, I went to the climate strike protest that was here in Pittsburgh and talked to the people, and I, I was stupid when I was 16, too. and I can't really fault her for that. I can fault the parents, and I can fault the adults that I met there that were just... They were, frankly, ignorant of the basics of climate change. They didn't know what they were protesting. And uh, the other thing that struck me at this climate strike is the close relationship we see now between the anti-capitalist mo- market, the pro-Marxist mo- movements. The most prevalent sign at that climate strike was, was a sign that said, uh, system change, not climate change. So they want they want to bring down our government. They want to bring down Western democracies and Western governments, and replace it with whatever their vision of this of this new system is going to be. And I I suspect it'll it'll begin with F and end in Ashism. Uh, there's just, <laughs> that's just me, but. Yeah. Uh, you know these, and it was it was. I talked with those. In fact, I interviewed. Uh, I had a video team. I went and interviewed people there. Greg, was,
2: Greg we're gonna have to pick this up another yep. time because I am past right. it now. Uh, but I have a three word response. To How dare them. you? Yeah, that's uh, that's what Greta <laughs> that's what Greta, that's what Greta wants to know. Uh, well, I, in the time you. that you were talking, by the way, I was able to download from the Apple App Store onto my iPhone, Inconvenient Facts app gives you 10 Inconvenient Facts free, and then you can purchase the other 50 for two ninety nine, which is a pretty cheap way to go to get all of this information. And better yet, get the entire book and read it in its uh, full full form. Inconvenient Facts, the Science that Al Gore Doesn't Want You to Know by Gregory Wrightstone. Gregory, thanks for the time today. I'm going to have you back on with Kurt Schlichter one of these days. and We're going to have a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Appreciate you. 1031, time for news now on AM 1420, The Answer. Fine at CopleyFeed.com. Well, I told you at the top of the show that we were guest heavy today, and I meant it. Three really, really good guests. Thanks again to uh, Dr frank wright who joined us uh, discussing the southern poverty law center and their continuing attacks on all things christian but from their uh, left-wing bully pulpit uh thanks also to gregory wrightstone the author of inconvenient facts and now i say thank you to dave ray for joining us dave ray with the federation for american immigration reform a regular guest on this program as are many of his colleagues at fair dave it's been a little while i think since washington dc but it's good to have you back on the air how are you
3: Good to be with you again, my friend. How you doing? I'm good. I uh, I wish we
2: could visit under better circumstances than <laughs> uh, a horrific, horrific crime committed, not in the United States, but actually about 50 miles south of the uh, American-Mexican uh, border, when uh, we all saw what happened earlier this week. A group of cartel gunmen ambush and murder three women and six children close to the New Mexico right. border, as mentioned. Um Dave, the reason I wanted to bring you on is you know, these people aren't illegal immigrants, but they may be, and this is the problem. These types of violent, ruthless drug cartel members and sometimes gang members and sometimes human sex traffickers and so on and so forth, these ruthless people that the president has said should be wiped from the face of the earth, they don't stay on the other side of that border to commit these terrible crimes. They are coming into the United States, and I think this... Horrific event underscores why President Trump is right to say we absolutely have to seal off that border.
3: Yeah, well, a couple points here, Bob. It uh, would be a real eye-opening experience to most Americans if they actually saw firsthand the brutality of these cartels. We're not used to seeing or hearing of things like this. You know, car full of innocent children and women being you know gunned down and burned. Uh, just south of our border. These were dual American and Mexican citizens who had been living in northern Mexico for generations. But, you know, the fact is that uh, the Mexican drug cartels are, are enriched by smuggling drugs and illegal immigrants into the United States. And our inability or unwillingness, or however you care to describe it, to secure our borders has effectively enriched these cartels and emboldened them to do these things exactly what was motivated behind the attack uh, there's been you know it sounds like years of tensions between uh the, the families uh, the American families that are living there in northern mexico and the cartels and whether or not this was just a warning shot but uh I'll tell you when I'm standing on the border uh down in San Diego uh, with border patrol agents, and they'll point out right across Mexican highways where, you know, one morning you'll look up and there will be a mutilated body hanging from a billboard for all to see, wow. and that is the sign for everybody on uh, during rush hour traffic. Imagine this: on rush hour traffic, you're driving by uh, billboards with with dead, mutilated bodies hanging from them. That's a note from the cartel saying, "Don't mess with us." You know this is scary stuff that's going on down there, and you know President Trump, as he said, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. And let me tell you, we don't want these folks in our country. We we've, we've had a short, uh, a small glimpse of what kind of nastiness they have to offer when you hear about some of the brutal killings of Ms. Thirteen that have happened in this country, where where they'll beat someone and disembowel them and cut their head off and burn them and all this awful stuff. And, uh, you know, we're, we're somewhat insulated from that, but only properly insulated if we have control of our border. And let's face it, we apprehended a million people trying to get in here last year. They think about 150,000 of them made it. And uh, we have several million people here who've applied for asylum. We know very little about hopefully none of them are, you know, connected to the cartels or MS-13, mm-hmm. but it, it's, it's a big problem for us. The other issue that Americans haven't really thought about, I don't think, is, you know, we, we like to talk about what's going on in Syria and the treatment of the Syrian people and the Kurds and all those things. Those are things that we should be uh, concerned with. But let me tell you, if Mexico blows up, uh, if the Mexican government can't, get a handle on these cartels, there's 129 million Mexicans who could who could very quickly become uh, our problem in terms of their fleeing Mexico and wanting to come to the United States. So Mexico's inability to regain control of its internal issues, notably the drug cartels, could end up being our problem whether we like it or not. <laughs>
2: David Ray is our guest from the Federation for American Immigration Reform. You can read and check out their tremendous research and work at fairus.org. Fair f a i r u s dot org. Um, David, what do you make of the president's offer yesterday, or essentially a challenge to Mexico? Uh, saying, we need to declare war. This is the time for Mexico, with the help of the United States, to wage war on the drug cartels and wipe them from the face of the earth. If Mexico needs or requests help in cleaning out these monsters, the United States stands ready, willing, and able to get involved and do the, to do the job quickly and effectively. Mexico quickly responded to that, saying, no, we don't need your help. The two-part question was, is what do you make of, uh, of Mexico uh, rejecting the president's offer of U.S. help to go to war and, and wipe out the cartels, wipe them from the face of the earth? And then what do you think that says, bigger picture, about the relationship between Obrador and the president?
3: Well, you know, this president of Mexico was elected kind of on the platform that he was going to de-escalate confrontation with the cartels, that he didn't want a war on drugs going on on Mexican soil. And I think, you know, my own opinion is that has been a horrendous miscalculation. It wasn't but about a month ago that, uh, you know, Mexican drug lords uh, in in one of the major towns in a a Mexican state uh, down in southern Mexico basically defeated the Mexican army and we're able to free a, a drug cartel senior member from uh, from captivity. So it sounds like Mexico's decision to de-escalate its army's in- involvement in this drug war is, is m- meaning that Mexico is, you know, Mexicans are paying the price. And uh, in this case, it was the Sinaloa cartel, and they they effectively control large parts of the border. Um, you know, I think the president was right in offering U.S. assistance. You know, if it, it's, you know, you look at where the United States is, we're all over the globe. We're in Korea, we're in Germany, we're in Syria, protecting everyone else's borders. Let me tell you, if Mexico blows up, we are going to need to be protecting our own borders a lot better because there's a lot of bad things that, be, that could be coming our way. I wish Mexico would let us in to help them. I think the US military would be would perform uh wonderfully against the gr- the drug thugs uh, of the cartels. I don't anticipate Mexico doing that. I think they've always been a little hesitant of their larger and more powerful neighbor to the north, and I'm I'm afraid I think they're afraid of inviting us in. But I they're gonna, you know, I don't know whether or not Mexico has the resources and its military and the capability. seems like they're outgunned by the cartels right now, so they may have no other choice than to invite us in, but I think that would probably be a last resort.
2: Yeah, and, you know, but we had been making, the reason I asked about the relationship between Obrador and President Trump is we had been making really great strides in getting yeah. their assistance in, uh, you know, limiting the, you know, kind of kind of helping to seal off their own southern border to limit the uh, flow of caravans from uh, Central America to come up to the United States. They've been helping us right. by cooperating on um providing amnesty for those who are looking for, not amnesty, excuse me, asylum, for those looking uh, for right. asylum in the United States. We, of course, have dec- Declared that anybody who wants to come here and declare asylum, if they pass through a third country to get here, you have to first uh, declare and ask for asylum there. So Mexico has done some good things to help the problem at the southern border. Um, I just wonder, again, now that we're talking about the violence of the cartels, their rejection of the president's offer there, does that say anything about their future cooperation on matters uh, like asylum and caravans?
3: I I think it doesn't. Um, I will say that in my, you know, I've been in the immigration debate for about 30 years, and during this period I've never seen cooperation from the Mexican government where they've actually acted like good neighbors. And I credit that to President Trump. I mean, any president in the last 30 years could have approached Mexico uh, and, and implored them or threatened them as President Trump did. Let's face it, we're Mexico's biggest market we buy 80% of their stuff. So, you know, the biggest customer, when you're looking at from a business perspective, your biggest customer has a lot of leeway. And when that customer isn't happy, your business isn't happy. And so President Trump was able to use the threat of tariffs and so on to kind of push Mexico into a a better cooperation. But I think, you know, President Obrador in Mexico has, has been willing to make these agreements. We have the migration protection protocol, whereby if uh, Central Americans ask for asylum in the U.S., uh, cross into the U.S. illegally and ask for asylum, they're returned to Mexico to await their asylum hearings. That basically gets rid of catch and release. They've had, you know, these third safe country agreements, whereby if you're passing through Mexico, as you mentioned, you have to ask for asylum there first. Uh, I think they are going to continue to cooperate on these measures you know there is a there is a lot of Mex- Me- mexican nationalism that we never hear about in this country mexico is a very proud country they're a sovereign nation um but, you know i first caught wind of it um, a couple years ago when i was in san diego and i started hearing about how outraged the mexican public was uh by the flood of Central Americans into Mexico, and that it was violating Mexico's sovereignty. Right. And Mexicans were making the same arguments that Americans were. You know, we have our own poor that we can't take care of, yet we're taking care of people from across, you know, from around the world. And so.
2: But they don't, do they, Dave? Don't doesn't Mexico have a much harsher policy of dealing with illegal aliens in their country than we do?
3: Well, they they weren't. The, the the mexican people were taking care of the of the asylees you know that mexico does have much stricter immigration policies than the u.s when they're enforced
2: right now what's people happening up.
3: there bob is that the cops at that point i'm talking about late last year were basically well, while the democrats were saying nothing was going on remember there were caravans coming out of Central America.
2: Well, yeah, America. yeah, no, they're not going to lock those people up because they know that they're only in Mexico for a ch- temporary period. They're on the way to the United right. States. Heck, they they right. they they escorted them up, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, but but generally speaking, before the caravan of Central Americans, caravans plural, started to become the norm, uh you come into Mexico as an illegal alien if you're not a Mexican citizen or there legally as a visitor, they will throw you in jail and uh yeah. and hold you there for a very long time, the kind of thing that we would never consider doing here. Which is uh, which I find kind of ironic,
3: right? And their deportations uh, at some years are are larger than ours. So uh, they, got, you know, that they they were looking blindly looking the other way or purposely looking the other way while these caravans came through. But I, I, I think the Mexican government, uh, you know, they have dispatched troops to the southern border. I think that they look at this whole drug thing as a domestic issue. And whether or not they have a plan on how to take out the cartels without our help is, uh, is really a question that's going to – we'll have to wait and see right. how they do it. I, I hope they're not outgunned by their own cartels, but it's certain the recent skirmishes the Mexican government's had with the cartels, it hasn't looked pretty and hasn't looked hopeful.
2: Yeah, I think you're 100% right, Dave. Uh, Dave, I'm glad. I uh, wish we had, again, a different uh, reason to, to to chat with one another, because this is a tragedy, and I hope it's something. I really wonder what this is going to do about Mexican tourism, Americans going yeah. to visit Mexico. I mean, this was a dual citizenship family, but you see an right. American family slaughtered in such a way. It's going to make a lot of well, people think twice and, about yeah, wanting to go makes, down there. It's a terrible thing. Yeah, Last
3: Absolutely, thing. and it make, it makes you understand also why the Border Patrol wants that wall there. You know, they're facing these cartels and that, uh, you know, the walls protect the Border Patrol agents along with our country and uh, along with our public and our citizens. And so it's another argument as to why the professionals who are, you you know, asked to safeguard the United States Border Patrol and Customs are all big advocates of having a border wall.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree, Dave. In fact, that was the primary reason for my call to you this morning to say, hey, let's talk about this. This is why Trump's border policies, including the wall, are so very important when we say things like this happening. David Ray, Federation for American Immigration Reform. Find him and them online at fairus.org. Thank you, Dave.
3: You bet, buddy. Have a good day.
2: You too, my friend. 10.52 now. We'll get our final time out and come back in with our final segment after this on AM 1420, The Answer. France
0: here on AM 1420. The answer.
2: The final segment of the broadcast, obviously a short one at 10:56. Three really great guests today. Thanks again to Dave Ray, Gregory Wrightstone, and Dr. Frank Wright. Uh, good conversations about a host of different issues. Um, I'm going to wrap it by, with a couple of things. Number one, just to once again uh, um, remind you of, of what Gregory Wrightstone and I talked about. Uh, that that book and that app are just perfectly appropriate. If you are on the App Store or the Google Play Store, look for Inconvenient Facts. That's the app. I downloaded it during my conversation with him, and I think it's really, really great to have that information at your fingertips. You can just grab anytime you hear any friend, family member at the Thanksgiving table, buddy at the uh, uh, water cooler or the break room on the job, anybody giving you any of that nonsense, uh, just pull out the app, tap the fact, and read them the truth. It's all sourced. None of it is just opinion. All right, so that's going to tick off liberals, make no mistake about that. That's, uh, that's How dare you? Yeah, exactly, right? Um, but the other thing I want to hit, because I haven't had a chance to do it. Well, actually, I haven't had a chance, but I just had three guests. Last night, Governor Matt Bevin uh, lost in Kentucky in a very, very narrow uh, um, election. Matt Bevin is a true Trump type of governor. And he lost in a state that President Trump won handily. And many are saying, well, this is proof that the tide is turning, that the pendulum is swinging. Even in red Trump-carried Kentucky, they're so fed up with Trump, they voted for a Democrat governor. I had a liberal friend of mine who keeps uh, messaging me on Facebook Messenger about this. How come you're not talking about that? I said, what would be the point of talking about that? Because if I did talk about it, I would have to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And the whole truth is, Matt Bevin was in deep, deep trouble with Kentucky voters because he dared to take on the teachers' union there and the pension, the unfunded pension liability in the state of Kentucky. He tried to fix it. He made a lot of enemies when he did that. Even though Kentucky is Trump country, he made a lot of enemies. This guy was trailing by anywhere from 8 to 12 points in the days before the election. And then along came Trump. The president gave him a rally uh, uh, in Kentucky and got everybody fired up for Bevin. And the 8 to 12 point gap that he had in the polls became less than a half of a percent. 49.2% went to the Democrat, 48.8% to Matt Bevin. Uh, Governor Bevin is gonna lose this, but it's not because of Donald Trump. Liberals, keep dreaming if you think this means that Kentucky turned on Trump. Trump's presence almost carried Bevin to a victory that he was going to uh you know, uh he was never going to get without him. He gave him a shot. So keep that in mind before you start talking any trash about President Trump's impact on these races. Mike Gallagher's next. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: Silence.